As Christians, God tells us to listen to him. And I'm sure that as the followers of Jesus, uh, our desire is to listen to him, to read his word, to take it to heart. But listening to God can be hard sometimes, can't it? Especially when there's so many other voices telling us what to do. And I think one of the other voices that I think shouts the loudest against God speaking to us is not necessarily the TV or radio or magazines, but it's the voice of our disappointment, the, the voice of our bad experiences, the questions that arise when life is hard, and it can be hard to listen to God. A little bit of suffering can often make it easier to listen to God, but a lot can make it hard. So, for example, God tells us in his word that obedience uh, to his word brings us blessing. But when life seems hard, it doesn't feel like that at times, does it? God tells us that obedience to his word brings blessing, but our friends tell us that obedience to his word means we're missing out. Which voice will we listen to? God promises in his word that your deepest need for forgiveness is met in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, perhaps your experience tells you that you have a different deepest need. You feel lonely or you have a longing for a boyfriend or girlfriend or a marriage partner or to have children. Which voice will you listen to? Sometimes trusting God, sometimes listening to God, believing God can be hard. And today in the book of Exodus, we see that for listening to God... For the nation of Israel, listening to God is hard. It's not hard so much because of what God has to say, because God has good things to say to them. Listening to God is hard because their situation is so bad. Life is so hard for them, they get to the point where they don't want to listen to God at all anymore. They're ready to give up. This part of Exodus, as we look at it, though, has some great encouragements for us, how we can keep going when life is tough. But before we jump right into Exodus 5, I thought it might be good to do a little recap for those of us who've just jumped in today. Um, If you remember back two weeks ago when we started in the book of Exodus, in chapter 1 and 2, we saw the nation of Israel are slaves. It's about 3,500 years ago, um, 1,500 years BC. Israel are slaves in Egypt and under an evil king, Pharaoh, And they cry out to God to rescue them from their slavery. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 23, if you skip back there. Chapter 2, 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And then down in verse 25, God heard their cry. It says, God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. In fact, in God's concern, his response is that God appears to Moses last week in the burning bush and he promises that he will rescue Israel. So have a look at chapter 3, verse 17, which we saw last week. God says to Moses, assemble Israel and then say to them this, verse 17, I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt uh, into the land of the Canaanites. In other words, he's going to rescue them into a new land. And chapter 4, where we ended last week, ends on a very positive note. It says, They believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. 
Now that's the verse immediately before what we're looking at today. Chapter 4 ends on a very positive note. And in today's passage, that rescue, it seems, is about to start. Moses and Aaron rock up to Pharaoh to command that he lets the Israelites go. We're going to pick it up from chapter 5, verse 1. Just picture it here. This is Pharaoh, the powerful king of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron are just a couple of slaves rocking up with a message from God for Pharaoh. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. And in the next verse, verse 2, we see Pharaoh's response. And he doesn't let them go. Basically, he says, I've never heard of this God of yours, uh, this Yahweh. Who's he think he is to tell me what to do? You guys are not going anywhere. Chapter, verse 2 of chapter 5. Pharaoh said, Who's the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Now that's perhaps the, not the response Moses and Aaron were hoping for. It's probably the one they should have expected because God warned them that's what would happen, but they're a bit disappointed, so they start pleading with Pharaoh in verse 3. Uh, but their pleading makes no difference. In fact, it just makes things worse. Pharaoh decides to use this as an opportunity to make life harder for the Israelites. Verse 4, the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you're stopping them from working. The same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Maybe make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Well, things have gone from bad to worse, haven't they? Now the Israelite slaves, they have to make just as many bricks, but they have to find their own straw. They have to go out over the land and find straw. And they don't like the new situation. Have you ever worked um, or been at school with one of those gung-ho Christians who's always talking about Jesus and so all the Christians in the workplace cop a hard time because of them? It can get a bit annoying kind of for for the rank-and-file Christian who wants to keep their faith to themselves, who doesn't want to stand out as a Christian, and there's another Christian standing up. That's the kind of tension that's rising here in the nation of Israel. The Israelites think that Moses and Aaron have perhaps just taken this a bit too far. I mean, marching up to Pharaoh and claiming to have a word from God. And now the Israelite foremen, they try to take matters into their own hands. They bypass Moses and Aaron. They come to Pharaoh and they reason with Pharaoh and remind Pharaoh that the Israelites are, after all, his servants. They're there to serve him, not Yahweh. Verse 15. Then the Israelite foreman went and appeared to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we're told make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. 
well, that doesn't work if you read on. So the foreman decide to actually take it up with the troublemakers themselves who started it all, Moses and Aaron. Verse 20. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them and they said, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials. You have put a sword in their hand to kill us. In other words, they're blaming Moses and Aaron. God's way doesn't seem to be working. And even now, Moses and Aaron start to question things at this point, and there's only one person left to blame, isn't there? God. The foremen have pointed the finger at Moses and Aaron. They point the finger at God. It's like the Garden of Eden, you know. The woman that you put here with me, she made me do it. Verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people and you have not rescued your people at all. Moses talks pretty bluntly to God, doesn't he? But it's not hard to sympathise with him, is it? I mean, every day the Israelites have to get up, go to work, if you can call it work, it's actually slavery, make bricks, get beaten, go home. That's their life, every day. Get up, make bricks, get beaten up, go home. And then Moses appears and he rocks up to Pharaoh with a word from God that the Israelites are going to be rescued. And what's the result? Well, suddenly work is twice as hard. They're getting beaten twice as much because they can't meet their quota because there's no straw. So much for the rescue. And I think it's the last phrase in verse 23 that really captures the frustration of Moses and Aaron. Verse 23, the last phrase, you have not rescued your people at all. That was God's promise last week. I will rescue my people. Moses is accusing God of breaking his promise. You have not rescued your people at all. What's going on, God? Where's your promise? Well, I wonder how God will respond to that accusation. Will he strike Moses down? I wonder what God has to say. Well, in Exodus 6... God speaks. In Exodus 6, God answers the accusation that he's broken his promise. And I think what's interesting as we read Exodus 6 is that in God's answer to Moses and the Israelites, God says nothing new. He basically just repeats to Moses all the promises that he made back in chapter 3. In fact, it's very similar to when God appears to Job. In the book of Job, Job is allowed to suffer in terrible ways and he asks God, God, why have you allowed this to happen to me? He demands an answer from God. And right at the end of the book of Job, when God finally speaks to Job, he doesn't actually give Job the reason why. He just says to Job, I'm God, you need to trust me. And it's very similar here. God simply says, I'm the Lord. You need to trust me. I will do what I've promised to do. Often when we're in trouble, we want more than that, don't we? Often when life is hard, we want some special message from God to comfort us, some reassurance that he's there. We want God to tell us something new. But God's already made all the promises that we need. God has already shown us that he's concerned for us in Jesus. 
We don't need a new word from God. We need to read and trust what he's already said and done. And it's the same for Israel. There's no new word from God here. God simply reminds them of the promises that he's already made. So chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also says to Moses, I am the Lord. And you notice that last L-O-R-D, as most of the L-O-R-Ds here are in capital letters. And Daryl drew our attention to that last week, didn't, didn't he? If you actually go back sometime and just read the introduction to your Bibles, kind of about page two or three, there's a little explanation there about what that capital L-O-R-D is. Where you see those four letters, Lord, in capital, that's actually God's name, Yahweh. Uh, but for whatever reason, it was kind of removed from the translation and we just have the L-O-R-D. And last week, when God re- revealed his name, Yahweh, to his people, he explained what his name meant, didn't he? He said, I am who I am. That's what my name means. I am who I am. In other words, I don't change. I am who I am. You can rely on me. I'm Yahweh. And so Yahweh, the God who doesn't change, in verse 6, repeats the promises he made last week. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. God doesn't seem to be angry here with Israel and Moses for their questions. He knows their situation. He knows life is unbearable. And so he simply reassures them that things will get better. Verse 7. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. In other words, Israel, don't give up hope yet. Things may look like a mess now. You might not see the way out, but just you wait. I will do what I've promised, and then you will know that I'm the Lord your God. And so after such a great reassurance from God that he's still concerned and he's still going to keep his promises, what is Israel's response? Verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. I think this is the saddest verse so far in the book of Exodus. Israel have given up on God. And even after that great reminder of who God is, their lives are so bad that the promise of God means nothing. To Israel, it looks like Pharaoh's winning. It looks like God has things out of control. Now, of course, we know that's not the case because we've read the story before. We know what comes next. We know that God is going to smash Pharaoh to the ground like an ant. We know that trusting God is the best option. But the Israelites don't know that yet. They haven't seen God rescue them, and they don't want to know about his promises 
because for them it's just too hard. They did not listen to him because of their discouragement and their cruel bondage. But even if they've given up on God, God hasn't given up on them. Because even despite their lack of faith, God is still going to rescue his people. And we're going to see that rescue next week. As Pharaoh is humbled under the mighty power of God. So come back next week and uh, see the rescue begin. But this week, Israel are just struggling to believe God's promises at all. And God simply points them to the future. He says, it may not seem like it now, but after I display my power, then you will know that I'm God. There's not going to be an easy way out, but I will do it. Now, that's a theme that we see right through the Bible, isn't it? God is not on about just giving his people short-term pleasure and helping them avoid every kind of trial that might come their way. That's never been the case. God does have a plan to see his people eventually free from sin, rescued from death, and in a new creation with him. That's what he's promised us even in Jesus. But part of that plan involves, in the meantime, being opposed. Part of that plan involves giving up some things now because we trust him. And it's not as if God is calling us to something that he doesn't understand or sympathise with. Because as hard as the things that we go through might be, when Jesus, the Son of God, walked on this earth as a human being, he experienced exactly the same battles. Don't think for a moment that because Jesus was God, somehow it was easier for him than it is for us. Hebrews tells us that's not the case. He was made like us in every way. For Jesus, obedience to God was hard. We sang about it in that song, didn't we? Jesus watched as Judas, one of his closest disciples, walked out of the room to betray him. Jesus listened as Peter denied him. Jesus stood in front of Herod and Pontius Pilate while they plotted to have him killed. He listened to the crowds as they called out for his crucifixion. And what did he do? He didn't retaliate. He didn't jump up and down and say that it wasn't fair. He didn't give up on his father. He entrusted himself to God. And his trust of God won our forgiveness. And when life is hard for us, when we're just worn out and we can't see any hope and we just find it hard to listen to God's comfort, what do we do? Where do we look? Well, Hebrews 12 tells us to look to Jesus. Uh, You might want to flip over to Hebrews 12. It's the last passage that we'll look at or you might just want to listen as I read it. Hebrews 12, and we'll pick it up at verse 2. We've just finished reading a whole chapter in Hebrews 11 about Christians in the past who suffered. And then he turns to us, and in verse 2 of chapter 12, the writer says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of our faith. That's what we're to do when times are hard. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What do we do when life is hard? We look to Jesus. We consider him. And how did he endure when life was hard? How did he endure the cross? By holding on to the promises of his father. He looked to the joy set before him. And after he endured, after he paid the penalty for our sin, God did raise him back to life and Jesus is now enjoying the rewards of his obedience. And if we trust Jesus, then we get to enjoy the rewards of his obedience too. We get to share in the new creation where there'll be no more sickness or crying or pain. And until then, we trust God's promises. I wonder who you're going to be like when life seems a mess. Will you be like the nation of Israel who listened to the voice of their experience and couldn't hear the promises of God? Or will you be like Jesus who believed the promises of God? Because as followers of Jesus, we will come up against opposition. There will be times when following God seems a drag. When following Jesus means getting a rough deal. When being a Christian means missing out on some things. Or when life just seems hard. There'll be times perhaps even when we lose sight of the big picture. Be overwhelmed by our current situation. Our failures. Our pain. Our disappointments. What does God say? He says, consider Jesus so you won't lose heart. Think about Jesus. There's lots of things we go to when we're in trouble, aren't there? We take a break. We visit a doctor. We read a book. We see a financial planner. We talk to a friend. We take medication. It's okay to do all those things, but there's one thing that you must do that you mustn't leave out. Consider Jesus. Read a gospel. Learn a memory verse. Consider Jesus. Because when times are tough, we don't need any new word from God. We simply need to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us and that one day he'll return and for those who are waiting for him, he'll take them to be with him. He's God. He's Yahweh. He will do it. Let's pray. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. Father God, thank you that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has prepared a place for us in the new creation. Thank you that for those who believe in him, he's washed us from sin and made us ready for his return. And Father, we pray that in the meantime, you'd help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we'd be not, not be distracted by discouragements, that we'd not be distracted by suffering. But we pray that when life is hard, we would listen even harder to your promises, that you'd help us to believe and trust and obey them. And Father, I'm just aware of many people in morning church at the moment who are um, struggling uh, with all sorts of life situations. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you might comfort them. We pray that you might bring to memory your promises to them. We pray that they might look to Jesus. And we pray that they might not grow weary or lose hope. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.